Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Our first two sermons in this series on foundations, wherein we are looking at the foundations of this congregation. Uh, we, these were about the God of the Bible himself and the word of God as our ultimate authority. From these two foundation stones, we now move to a third, which is God's great work of salvation in and through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Our text today speaks of the problem, the potential problem at least, of drifting away from and of neglecting so great a salvation. Moreover, the warnings attached to such drifting and neglect are pretty dire. Many churches through the ages have found themselves in this place. For example, we read of these even in the very early chapters of the book of Revelation when Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus. And he says, and, and you think about us having worked through the, the book of the epistle to the Ephesians and how strong they were and how they were really a firm church. Uh, Timothy was their pastor, but here just a few years later, uh, Jesus says to them, I have this against you. You have left your first love. God's word, which contains the gospel, is steadfast and unchangeable. And that means that when it comes to the gospel message, we too, as a church, must be unchangeable. We must be steadfast. The Apostle Paul warned the church at Galatia in Galatians 1, 6-9. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you other than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you other than what you have received, let him be accursed. For about 20 years, the members of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church have come out from the world and gathered together because we are open followers of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We are believers. We believe the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ that no one comes to the Father but by Him. 
that he is the only mediator between God and man, that his way is not one way among many ways, but rather he is the way. Moreover, that one way is narrow, and it begins by our entering through the narrow gate, following his demands of self-denial and laying down our lives and taking up our crosses to follow him, is to be separate from the world, to be hated by men even as he was hated, and as he challenged the multitudes to count the cost of following him, we read in the scriptures that many turned and followed him no more. This is too hard. This demands too much. But we have said, we're ready, we're, we're willing. Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, and that in the end he will say to some of those who acted like they were his followers, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So our text provides the first great warning that we find in this epistle to the Hebrews. And the force of this warning is far more than academic or theological. How we think is important to how we live, but how we think must never be taken as a substitute for how we live. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, the writer has been demonstrating, as we heard in Sunday school this morning, the greatness of Christ over the angels and his supremacy really over the entire created order. But the nature of his supremacy is important. Paul isn't simply amusing us with arcane details of the celestial hierarchy. His point is that Christ is so much greater than the angels that we must take special precaution to ensure that we don't ever drift away from him. And so, this doctrine directly addresses our behavior. It's the foundation of faithfulness, and therefore one of the foundations of our church that we can never forget. The word of the law proves steadfast, and the gospel is also steadfast. The Lord spoke it first. Those who heard the Lord then also confirmed it. And God from heaven confirmed the message, as our text tells us, with miracles and the gift of the Holy Spirit. A faithful generation reads the signs and goes beyond them to the thing that is signified. If a miracle is a great thing, how much greater is the Christ that is vouched for by the miracle? The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is therefore to be the central object of our attention. As we heard again this morning, In Sunday school, the whole Bible, all the Old and New Testament is about Christ. And that means our whole faith is about Christ. Our whole life should be centered in Christ and the gospel. He, the Bible says, is the chief cornerstone of our foundation. If we are to avoid the danger that is warned against in this passage the danger of drifting away, Paul says that it is necessary that we, quote, give earnest heed to, 
That is, we are to pay very careful attention to these things. The problem is one of neglecting a great salvation. That is, taking it for granted. Isn't that something we're all tempted to do? Don't we do that with each other in our own homes, with our loved ones? How much more so do we do it with the Lord himself? Falling away from the faith has seemingly small beginnings. Great unfaithfulness begins with small driftings. We don't just wake up one day and run, jump off the cliff. We inch over to it, little by little by little. To receive a great salvation with less than our full attention, less than the full attention it merits, is to be guilty of neglecting it, which is to treat it with contempt. In fact, this could be happening at the very moment this warning is being delivered from the pulpit. How many Christians treat the message of salvation with a casualness through their omission of an earnest attention, through their indifference? Or through some watered-down version. One of our great enemies in our walk with God is our lethargy. And so we should remember that the Bible teaches us that God is not mocked. When God judges, and he does, he does so for those things which he told us and warned us about and which we then Neglected. With the greater clarity of the new covenant comes a greater strictness of judgment. In the new covenant, covenantal judgments don't disappear. They're actually greater. Sometimes people think that in the older covenant there was a stricter sanction, but in the new covenant God somehow has lightened up. And so there are no judgments. It's just kind of a big precious moments. No problem uh, is, is, excuse me, the problem is that this notion collides with text after text after text in the Bible. These warnings are to church members in Hebrews. This isn't a warning against an unbeliever outside the church who fails to respond uh, to the preaching of the gospel. This is a warning against members of the covenant community of God, baptized people who are in danger of drifting away from so great a salvation. We have this warning here. We have Christ warning also, for example, in John 15, where he talks about, I am the vine and you are the branches. Any, any branch in me that does not bear fruit will be cut off by my Father, who's the vine dresser. Cut off and burned. We have this warning in Romans 11. That if the natural branches, the Jews, were not spared, they were cut out of the olive tree for unbelief, how much more you, who were grafted in, the unnatural branches that it were, if you fall away, you're not going to be spared either. The conclusion of the matter is that we must pay diligent attention, stricter attention to Christ, And we must never stop paying attention to the glory of his person and to the merit of his work. To do anything else is the source of all spiritual negligence and ultimate shipwreck, either for us individually or our families or our whole church. 
And as we see, as we see in this text, God judges all such sloth. And by the way, judgments don't just come in the form of uh, fire and brimstone falling out of heaven. They come in, judgments come in all kinds of forms. All, if you just substitute the word judgments for miseries. That's what happens when we sin. When we stray from God, it's, we're separated from Him. And then things start to happen. Bad things start to happen. So let's consider our great salvation. Could you find adequate words to describe a beautiful scene of a landscape? I was calling uh, last week, and I called Jason Robertson, who's not here today because he's in the Rocky Mountains. And I didn't know that, and he answered his phone, and we had a good chat, and he was describing how beautiful it was. And uh, his words were inadequate. Uh, we've had two families recently go to New Zealand, and I've seen some of the pictures. The pictures are glorious, but I'm sure they would be quick to say, but the pictures don't really capture the beauty that is just kind of an outline, if you will, in a photograph. So pictures are inadequate. So, And so with this same limitation, we come to talk about this great salvation. And words seem inadequate, but that's what we have to work with. But it ultimately requires the work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes in order to behold the beauty of this great salvation. To see beyond the words to know the reality, to taste the salvation, to have our sins forgiven and put away forever, to be taken out of darkness and into His marvelous light, to be taken from a state of death into a state of life, to be adopted as children, to be embraced by God's loving arms, and to be declared not guilty. Indeed, to be declared innocent and righteous. We can't adequately describe these things, but the Holy Spirit can make them real to us. Spurgeon once had an encounter with a woman who was seeking his support for an anti-capital punishment movement. She said the problem was that uh, we've had the wrong ideas about punishment. We've been punishing people because we think they deserve to be punished. What we should do instead, she says, is show them that we love them and we only punish them to make them better. Spurgeon said, quote, While the purpose of punishment may be to change, the basis of punishment lies in the positive guilt of the offender. When a man does wrong, he ought to be punished for it. I suppose that you would allow some great vagabond who has committed burglary dozens of times, sit in an easy chair in in the evening beside a nice fire and mix him a glass of spirits and water and give him his pipe and make him happy to show him how much we love him. Well, she said, she wouldn't give him the spirits. But the rest would probably do him good. Spurgeon said that it seemed to him, quote, to be the most prolific method of cultivating scoundrels that could be imagined. You could grow any number of thieves this way. The idea of fondling villains and treating their crimes as if they were tumbles, the tumbles and falls of children made me laugh heartily. 
I imagined the government turning its efforts toward these excellent persons and the great results that would come of these kinds of experiments. The sword of the magistrate transformed into the gruel spoon and the jail transformed into a sweet retreat for injured reputations. Well, people are not made any better by ignoring their crimes and sins. And God doesn't ignore our sins. He doesn't just look the other way. We tend to minimize the seriousness of our own sins, but the Bible says that any sin is an offense against a holy God and that it is worthy of death. One sin is worthy of death. That seems awfully tough. Perhaps it seems tough because we have a wrong view of sin. Sin is an offense against our Creator. I have the audacity to rebel against a holy God. But the wages of sin is death. Death is separation from God. God is holy and sin can't come into his presence. I can't be in fellowship with God when there's sin between me and him. When people die physically, they are separated from the living physically. They don't cease to exist. So what happens when we die spiritually? Do we cease to exist? Some people may wish. You're going to exist as long as God exists. You're either going to exist in His presence, which is life, or else you're going to be separated and cut off from God, which is death. Only that which is holy can be in His presence. Sinners are not holy, and therefore they must be separated from God. Death. In fact, our, connection, our condition is so serious that like physical death, we are utterly helpless and hopeless to do anything ourselves to remedy the problem. What can a dead man do to help himself? What can he do to improve his condition? Can he make a slight improvement? No. Not only can he not make a slight improvement, but from the point of his death, he gets worse and worse until he is completely decayed. He is, as the Scriptures say, without God and without hope. Sin has so corrupted us that there is no way we can reverse the process of decay. God is the only person who could possibly save us from our sins. So I want to say something about salvation and works. Do you believe in salvation by works? I do. Not the works of man, but the works of God. So let's consider the various aspects of God's great work of salvation. It's His work. God initiates salvation. This is necessary because of our sinful condition. When I fell, I didn't just bump my head. It killed me. Some people think that they're going to live a certain way and that at some point, when they think they've sown enough wild oats or done all the things they want to do, at some point, 
they will have gotten all that out of their system, and then, when they think the time is appropriate, they'll come to God, and God is up in heaven kind of wringing his hands, hoping you'll come, then God will be glad to have them. This isn't what the Bible says. Salvation must be initiated by God. He is the creator and you're the creature. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, after Ephesians 2 tells us you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it says, and those, that great word, but. But God. But God who is rich in mercy. Because of his love, great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. He gave his only begotten Son. For when we were still without strength, Romans 5, 6-8, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will die, will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, remember the sin is what killed us, the sin is what separates us from God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What was our condition before salvation? Romans 8, 6-9, For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity or hostility toward God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Let me explain that a little bit. You say, well, I have a free will. You do. I'm a big believer in free will. The problem is, your free will is broken too. It only wants the wrong things. It doesn't like God. It is hostile toward God, and it's never going to choose God unless God changes it. So if you don't like spinach, what do I have to do to get you to like spinach? Are you ever going to just choose spinach, this thing you detest? No. I was that way with asparagus, canned asparagus. Got sick on it when I was a kid. I didn't even want it in the house. When I got married, I told Mary, never buy a can of asparagus. Can't even be in the house. <clears throat> Something has to happen to change you. You're not going to ever choose what you're hostile toward. Now, maybe someone will hold a gun to your head and say, eat it or die. And you may say, well, I'd rather eat it than die because I hate dying more than I hate eating this. So you could be coerced, but your free will left to yourself is not going to choose what you're hostile toward. There has to be something change. You have to see things in a new way. So that's what happened to me with asparagus, by the way. We were at Shelley's Cafe downtown, and we ordered a sandwich and a salad, and I was eating the salad, and I 
made the comment to Marinelle, these green beans are really good. She said, that's asparagus. <laughs> but it wasn't canned asparagus. So. so I had a new understanding, a new view of it. Now I desired it. Now I started growing it. Now I was buying it. I wanted it. Now most people try to cover their hostility toward God. But the Bible teaches us that if you are not in complete submission to God, then you are hostile toward God. Oh, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. That's simple. On the inside, you say, I'm going to do it my way. Salvation will be on my terms. But this great salvation, this great salvation that we can't drift away from, must be initiated by God, and He dictates its terms. Your condition as a sinner is that you would have never come to God unless He first did something. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. We would have never found our way back if He didn't send out a search and rescue team If Jesus didn't come and seek to save you, you would never be saved. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. You didn't call Jesus down from heaven. He came because he wanted to come. This is God's work. This great salvation, which we must never drift from, has at its heart the atonement. I just want to take this apart in these last few minutes of the sermon. Look at a few words that help us understand what happened, what is happening in this great salvation. Atonement. I like to remember the word atonement by breaking it apart and calling it at-one-ment. Substitutionary or vicarious atonement, a covering. Have you ever had a vicarious experience? Sure you have. Perhaps as a parent you've been caught up in the performance of one of your children with their music or their athletics. You get so caught up in what they're doing that you have this vicarious experience. It's like you're there yourself. Or perhaps when you've read a book you've had a vicarious experience. If an author is good and he provides a good description of what's going on, you get caught up in the action. And you can see the scene. And you have a vicarious experience. Someone else is there in your place and you're able to experience the situation through them. Christ was our substitute. He stood in our place. We should die for our sins. Jesus never thought a sinful thought, never uttered a sinful word, or ever never committed a sinful act. Not one. How long can you go without a sinful thought? A prideful thought? Now do you see the gap between you and him? It's not a little gap. It's enormous. He came and lived that perfect, sinless life, and he said, I am going to be your substitute. He stood in our place so that we could stand in his place. 
He became sin, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Does that move you? Do you understand what that means? You've never heard a sentence. You've never heard a phrase. You have never heard anything that is better news than that. And you never will. God made Christ to be sin on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God. Stunning. You know what would happen if you, to you if he had not done that? Then you would die in your sins and you would be separated from God forever. Christ is our substitute. He didn't come to help us help ourselves. Some people have the idea that salvation is like a 20-foot wall, and we can't quite get over the wall of God's expectations. So Jesus came just to give us a boost, to help us up over the wall, to give us inspiration, to encourage us to try harder. You know, it's kind of the, uh, I just thought of the, if any of you watched American Ninja Warrior, and, and they always come up to the warped wall, and the crowd starts chanting, Beat that wall. Beat that wall. That's not Jesus. Jesus isn't doing that for us. That's not what the Bible says. Some people think he came to tear the wall down, to make it lower and easier so that we could get over the wall of God's expectations. The Word of God says that Jesus came and he just moved us out of the way and he stood there and he jumped the wall. He stood in our place. He is our substitute. And it is through the atonement, which is a covering of our sins. And he stood between God and our sins so that God no longer sees our sins. Another word the Bible used to describe this great work of salvation is redemption. Perhaps you have redeemed some coupons. They have value. They buy you something. Redemption means to purchase. It's a payment for a ransom. You were slaves to sin and to the devil, but God, be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, Paul writes. People like to think of themselves as free. In fact, they are free to do whatever their sin nature wants them to do, as we mentioned. You're free in the same sense that you're free to fall off the roof. Something I'm very familiar with. But you can't fall up. You can only fall in one direction. A sinner is free to be a slave to the flesh and the devil. Jesus came to redeem us, to purchase us. This is our great salvation. Galatians 3, 13 and then 4, 4 and 5. Christ has redeemed us, purchased us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, substitute. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy back, 
those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Not only did he purchase us out of slavery, he also adopted us. He made us his children. That's central to this great work of salvation. How can we drift from that? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the price for saving you was the blood of Jesus. So the great work of salvation is the redeeming, the buying of sinners, buying them out of slavery. Another word, propitiation. It's an important concept in salvation. Propitiation is the turning away of wrath by an offering. Romans 1 argues that all men, Jews and Gentiles alike, are sinners and that they come under the wrath of And the condemnation of God. And when Paul turns to discuss salvation, he then speaks of the propitiation of Christ. Romans 3, 24 and 25. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, demonstrates his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Propitiation is God's wrath being poured out on Christ instead of on you and me. Sometimes I've seen the the word grace as an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. You get the riches and he pays the price. He is the propitiation. He stands in our place. He takes the wrath that we deserve. In this is love, John writes. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus loved us so much that He became a man and He stood in our place while the just wrath of God was poured out on Him. The great work of salvation is the propitiation for our sins. Forgiveness is to take away our sins. In Him, Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And then there's justification, which according to larger catechism is an act of God's free grace. Unto sinners, whereby he pardons all their sins, accepts them and counts them as righteous in his sight, not because of anything they produced in themselves or anything done by them, but only because of the perfect obedience of Christ, which satisfied the justice of God. This righteousness is then imputed to those who receive it by faith. Now, I hope you're not getting bored yet. This is a great salvation, and it takes a few minutes to try to even begin to get the edges of it. Sinners are guilty. They have a legal problem. 
We have offended the judge of the universe. We are criminals in God's universe. We've broken his law and we are guilty. And one aspect of God's great work of salvation then is that we have a legal problem. Christ stood in our place and endured the penalty for your sins as though he were guilty. Not you, now, now you, in Christ, stand in a place so that now when God sees you, it's not just that your sins have been forgiven. Rather, he views you as though you never sinned. That's taken it a step beyond. God sees Christ. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. It's put on your account. He opens up the books, the docket, the ledger. Zero. That's what's owed. There is no debt whatsoever. It has been canceled. You're free to go. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God. I took off my dirty coat and Christ put it on. And Christ took off his clean coat and I put it on. We traded places What was mine became his. What was his became mine. Romans 3. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. But to him who does does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, accounted for righteousness. Now, one other aspect of the great work of salvation, uh, another, I should say, is reconciliation. Reconciliation, that is to be made right, a restoration of a right relationship between persons. By this change, a, a state of enmity or estrangement is replaced by peace and fellowship. At one point, there was a problem between God and me. To understate the case, I was a covenant breaker and I was under his wrath and curse. We had a problem and we had no fellowship. I was the whole problem. Romans 5, 10 and 11. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Jesus came to mend the problem. He came to restore my fellowship with God. Can you imagine this? Have you ever had someone who really offended you, really sinned against you, really made you angry, really hurt you, and then came along and said, will you forgive me? And you don't want to, do you? That really doesn't even begin to capture the picture here. We've offended a holy God. We've opposed Him. We have been rebels against Him. We were sinners and we didn't come to Him and say, God, we're sorry. Would you please forgive us and make us right with you? No, we continued in that rebellion until He did something. He, through His Son, enabled us to be reconciled. 
2 Corinthians 5, Now all things of God are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We had a legal problem, but that was only part of our problem. Imagine a man on death row for murder who was pardoned for the crime. It turns out he also had a malignant brain tumor. It didn't do much good to get out of jail, did it? Our problem, you see, is deep and wide. It is outside and it is inside. It's what we do and it's who we are. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Bear with me quickly. Two more quick things. Again, we're just doing the flyover. Another aspect of God's work of salvation is sanctification. Salvation isn't just getting saved from the penalty of our sins. Sin is still at work in me, and I need to be changed from the inside out. And so this is going to be a process. The Bible uses the word sanctification. It simply means the process of being made separate or holy. Don't you have some sanctified dishes at your house? We do. The ones that are set apart for special use. The good dishes. We get out for special occasions. So too God sets his people apart. He makes us different and special. We are God's people. Our sins have been forgiven. And we have been regenerated and reconciled. Westminster, larger catechism. Sanctification is a work of God's grace by the power of the Holy Spirit, whereby he applies the death and resurrection of Christ to believers, renewing them in the image of God so that they die more and more into sin and live more and more unto righteousness. Sanctification is the process of us becoming like Christ to be made holy, and that's part of this great salvation. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is how we know that we have received the salvation in the first place. And then the final installment here in our brief flyover of God's great salvation is glorification. That's the completion of salvation. It is God's finished work. It is, the, it is the state of perfection in body and soul. Romans 5, 2 and 8, 30. Through whom Jesus Christ also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Moreover, whom, whom he predestined, these he called. And whom he called, these he justified. And whom he justified, these he glorified. We'll all stand in the presence of God in eternal fellowship with Him. Eternal fellowship with Him. Eternal life. That's the same thing. The perfect state of happiness. 
Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, Paul wrote, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. For our citizenship, he writes again in Philippians 3, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Hallelujah. This is just the beginning. We have the new heavens and the new earth to look forward to. A new body and a new soul that never sins, saved forever from the presence of sin. Now this is a great salvation that we must never, ever drift away from. Let's pray. Father, when we consider where we came from, our helpless and hopeless condition, and when we consider what you have done for us, to us, and in us, we stand amazed. Your rich mercy, love, grace, and kindness have rescued and redeemed us, brought us up from the grave, and seated us in the heavenly places. Help us to see this reality, and may it override every circumstance of our lives, that we might be seen by all the world as an object of your mercy and love, and as the trophies of your grace. May our lives truly be to your everlasting glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's nothing you and I can do to earn salvation. Nevertheless, there are some things that we need to be doing if we are to obtain the free and gracious gift of God's great salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Bible tells us we should be seeking and knocking. Ask and it will be given to you and you... And you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Perhaps some of you have not asked, you've assumed or presumed, I want to urge you to go to the Father and ask Him to work in you and for you and through you, to change you, to strengthen you, to enlighten you, whatever you need. Years ago, a young man that several of us had witnessed to, he was in high school, this was 30-something, 40, maybe more, 30 or more years ago, a very bright guy, and we had spent a long time, he, he professed to be an atheist, and we'd given him books to read, talked with him many times, then one late night, uh, we were actually uh, uh, playing a game of chess, I think it was probably one in the morning, and he said, well, I guess you have answered all my objections. I thought, well, that's good. He said, I guess I just don't want to be a Christian. And I said, well, I could have told you that the day I met you. I think he thought he was going to surprise me. I said, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. Would you go home tonight and would you ask God 
Would you pray and ask God to make you want to be a Christian? And it was a long pause. It's like he was afraid to say yes. But he said yes. It was on a Friday night. On Saturday night, I should say on Sunday morning, because I believe it was about 2 a.m., my phone rang. Quite upset person on the other end. He said, what do I need to do to be saved? get off the phone with me and go out and get before God and tell him what you want. And he did. So, we need to seek the Lord seeking me. Okay? Repent. Turn away by the grace of God. Believe and commit Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, that if you confess with your mouth that, that uh, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, and such is the great work of God's salvation. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. For in the resurrection of Jesus, the victory has been won. O happy day! Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? O Lord, bless this Lord's day. May it be a day of rest and renewal. Bless now our extended feast and communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Amen. Amen.